Hey, this is Aaron Brockett, lead pastor of Traders Point Church. Regardless of where you are tuning in around the world or if you call Indianapolis home, I just wanna thank you for tuning in to our weekly message podcast. Our prayer and desire is that God would take the content of these messages and use it to encourage you in your relationship with Jesus as you discover God's purpose for your life. All right, how's it going, everybody? It's good to see you today. I want to welcome all of our guests and first-time visitors across all of our campuses. Man, we're so glad to have you here today. And uh, our mission as a church is we want to remove unnecessary barriers that keep people from Jesus. And the reason why we say it that way is because we believe that Jesus is the only one who can save anyone, and so we want to get everyone to him. And once we introduce you to Jesus, then we want to come alongside of you and help encourage you in your spiritual growth and give you the tools necessary for that. That's uh, the primary reason behind Growth Track. That's why we keep encouraging you to check that out, and I hope that you will. Because our desire for every single person is that you would eventually come to see that the church is something more than you just watch on a screen or something that you attend occasionally when you can make it, or something that you, uh, some place that you come just to watch or receive something, but that you would eventually begin to see yourself as a part of this, that you would be on mission with us. And we just got to see a great picture of that on Friday night at all of our campuses where hundreds and hundreds of you came together uh, to write letters and to pack bags and to pray over those bags that are going to go towards uh, foster children in our city. And it was just an amazing thing to watch and see the church being the church. And I just want to thank all of you for serving in that way. Um, we are in this uh, series uh, called Asking for a Friend. So if you're just now coming into this, what we're doing is we're taking some of the most common questions that we receive from all of you on a regular basis. And we're just trying to address as many of them as we can. And I want to be really clear about this. The reason why we're addressing these questions is not because we believe that we have all the answers. Uh, We don't. Uh, I don't. Uh, But we trust and follow someone who does. And we know that spiritual growth takes place when we can have good conversations around honest questions. And many of the questions that come in and have come in, they're complicated. And oftentimes, they are emotional. And I would say that that's maybe even more so true of the set of questions that we want to look at today. It was very true of last week's. Last week, if you missed it, we talked about some of the questions that you ask around pain and suffering. But it's true today as well. My, uh, right after my uh, sophomore year in Bible college, I landed a summer internship at a mid-sized church in Anderson, Indiana. Now, I'm from southwest Missouri, so it was my very first time to Indiana, and I had no idea that years later God would call us here, but I'm really glad he did. And uh, I I pull into town, I'm 20 years old, and uh, I'm going to be there for a few months, and so I'm looking for some guy friends to hang out with, and that's when I met a guy by the name of Dan, not not his real name. Uh, Dan was several years older than me, and he volunteered in the worship ministry at the church, and uh, I enjoyed hanging out with Dan. We would go see movies, we'd hit golf balls, and uh, grab a bite to eat. And one afternoon, Dan and I were just kind of sharing our stories with each other. And that's when Dan shared something with me that didn't surprise me. Uh, Dan told me that he had grown up in a Christian family and had grown up going to church and that he had made a decision for Jesus at an early age. But then Dan shared something with me that I wasn't expecting. Uh, Dan told me that during his adolescent years, he began to realize that he was attracted 
to the same sex. And he really wrestled with that. And it was causing a lot of confusion and anxiety. And so eventually he reached out and he began to share that with family and friends and people in the youth group. And the response was not good. Dan was shamed and he was shunned. And these are his words. He said that he tragically fled the church in search of love. But Dan told me that afternoon that just within the past year that he had come back and that he was trying to reconcile and offer some forgiveness and receive forgiveness from family and friends and try to mend some of those relationships. And he said, I'm trying to follow after Jesus. And then he said, I, I made the decision, the difficult decision, to not act upon those desires. That was Dan's story. Now, I don't know how many of you would relate to me, but um, I, not all of you, but maybe some, I grew up in a small town in southwest Missouri where I didn't know any gay people, or at least I didn't think that I did. Now, looking back, I know I did. I just wasn't aware of it. And that's more of a commentary on me than anything else. But since that time, I've come to know and love many and consider them to be good friends. One of the most common questions that we receive around here on a regular basis, and I would say this is probably easily in the top three, uh, could be articulated this way. If I or someone I love is attracted to the same sex or identifies as LGBT, will we or they be accepted here? And questions around this topic, as you might imagine, are politically and emotionally and relationally charged. And uh, I would imagine that a number of us already have a, an opinion on this and a perspective, and maybe depending upon your personality, maybe you have a personality where you're wired up to where you just sort of see things as black and white, right and wrong, this and that. And so from your perspective, regardless of how, where you sort of land on this, you kind of think, well, there's clearly an answer and we should just stay so bluntly. Either yes, sexuality has boundaries and we should say so, or maybe you're of the opinion where no, no, it doesn't. Everyone should feel free and encouraged to follow their desires. And I guess I would just simply say today that this isn't easy. In fact, this is only easy if you have figured out how to perfectly balance grace and truth in your life, and few of us do. This is only easy if you don't know anyone who is gay or lesbian, bisexual, or transgender. This is only easy if you've never had a grown son or daughter come home from college break and say two little words to you around the kitchen table that changed everything for you. Mom and Dad, I'm gay. This is only easy for you if you've never wrestled with same-sex attraction and you've wondered what other people are going to say or think when they find out. This is only easy for you if you've never had someone that you love and care for who's contemplated taking their own life due to the shame that this issue has caused. Therefore, as a church, we will never give careless or flippant responses to such important and potentially divisive questions. And while there is a place for stating very clearly our perspective or our understanding of this, and I plan to today, man, we have to be extremely thoughtful and compassionate and intentional as we do because there is so much at stake within this conversation See, I want all of us to remember this phrase right here, that truth should never be used or even perceived as a weapon to devalue or to dehumanize anyone. And often the questions around this topic 
Nine times out of ten, they come to us via email, which is very difficult to develop any sort of relational connection. And they oftentimes come phrased this way, well, where does the church stand? And I can understand why somebody might ask that, but I would have to just say that I don't really care for the where do you stand questions, because it oftentimes doesn't respect the complexity of certain issues, nor does it take the time and the energy to really listen to somebody and hear their story. When you look at the life of Jesus in the four biographies of his life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, one of the things that you notice is Jesus very rarely stands. Jesus was like always walking, like he was, his feet were carrying him towards where the people were, and once he got to the people, he would sit down with them. Jesus never once addressed the crowd this way. Hey, hey, listen up, all you liars, cheats, adulterers, tax collectors, and children who disobey your parents. This is where you stand with me. Now, he always got down with them and looked them in the eye and showed compassion and tenderness. He would ask questions. He would ask for something to drink or maybe invite himself over to their home. And Jesus would always speak truth into somebody's life without ever once devaluing them as a person. And that's why Jesus sat with people. And that's why our desire is that we would sit with people too. That we would sit with people long enough to be able to know, that for them to know, that they have been heard. You see, loving people well means listening more than talking. It means caring more about understanding where they come from rather than understanding, or trying to get them to understand where you come from. And so if we just reduce this to a where do we stand on certain issues, I'm afraid that we will eventually find ourselves standing with self-righteous Pharisees rather than sitting with Jesus and with people. And I would rather sit where Jesus sat than stand where Pharisees stood. It is possible to be truthful and loving at the same time. Jesus was. And so as a church, we're going to be extremely thoughtful about this. And like Jesus, we're going to sit with people in love in order to earn the trust that is required to share any sort of truth. And figuring out how to do both, man, it's really, really hard work. And it means that we need to rely upon the Holy Spirit to do so. Now, to be perfectly honest, this would not be a topic that I would necessarily pick to preach on for the obvious reasons. It's part of the reason why many of you haven't taken a breath in the last five minutes. So you probably should, all right? Like, let's just all breathe, okay? That would be good. I I had a number of you come up to me this last week, uh, because last week we talked about pain and suffering, if this is your first time to be with us. And a number of you came up to me, and you're like, Aaron, you were so courageous tackling that. And I was like, Ah, just wait, all right? Just, uh, (laughs) like, that's just kind of a warm-up, all right? And I want to be clear that the reason why I wouldn't necessarily pick to preach on this isn't because I'm afraid of it. I've addressed this before in the past, but I I just know that it's a minefield. I I know I'm not getting out of this message without having some of my blood drawn. Uh, Thanks. I, I, (laughs) you're you're back there, I'm up here. All right, so... uh, (laughs) I I know I'm throwing myself out into oncoming traffic, and I know I'm not going to be able to please everyone with this message, and yet it's still important. And I want you to hear me. 
I'm not addressing this because we're trying to single this issue out or make it something that's bigger than any other issue we all struggle with. We're all in the same boat. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. I also know that not every person who is same-sex attracted has the same story, perspective, or opinion. And to assume that they do is called stereotyping, and we will not do that. So I want to be really, really clear as to why I'm addressing this. And the primary, well, there's a couple of reasons. One reason is because you've asked me to, all right? So it's your fault, all right? So th this question just comes in way too often for me to just sort of turn the other way and not say anything about it. But another reason, I think it's more important, is that as a church, we need to model the tone and the tenor for how to have conversations like this one from a teachable and humble place because where else is this being modeled? It's certainly not... It's certainly not being modeled on the news channels. It's not being modeled on social media. Lines are drawn in the sand, and people say you're either for us or you're against us, and there's these emotional hand grenades that are thrown across the lines. And for far too long, Satan has been having a field day with this issue, creating so much pain and confusion and division. And in the name of Jesus, we just need to humbly stand up and say enough. We want to hold on to our convictions and we want to hold on to Jesus. More importantly, we want to hold on to Jesus more than our understanding of our convictions as we reach out to anyone and everyone. There are two primary perspectives that I want to make sure that I speak very clearly to today. Number one, if you are same-sex attracted or you identify as LGBT, man, I'm so glad that you're here. I'm so glad that you decided to come. I'm so glad that you're watching or listening. I'm so glad that you have the courage to maybe continue to sit where you're sitting, even though you know this is what we're talking about. And I want to be very clear that I do not claim to have all the answers on this. And, and I may very well say some things that maybe you don't like or maybe you don't agree with or understand. And I just want you to know that's okay. And I think so much of the time we think to ourselves, man, how in the world am I supposed to love you if we disagree with each other on really important issues? And I would just say, I've been married to somebody for 20 years and she disagrees with me all the time. And I would say that it actually enhances our love for each other. You see, love is required. Agreement is optional. And so if I say something that unintentionally offends you, and I realize that this is such tricky ground that the odds of that may be very high, or if I get something wrong, which is very possible because I get things wrong all the time regardless of the topic, I would just ask that you give me some grace as well as the benefit of the doubt as I wade into these waters, I'm still learning and growing too, and I want to approach this from a teachable spirit. And ultimately, responding to these questions as directly as I am is my attempt to pastor this church well. That's my heart. The other perspective is that if you're here and you're a Christ follower, and you're just really wrestling with, because you've got maybe got a child or a friend or a family member or a coworker uh, who is gay, and you're like, how do I... Hold on to truth and how do I reach out in love? Because honestly, Aaron, it doesn't feel like I ever do either very well. It feels like I'm flunking both. Then I would just say, I know how you feel. I'm right there with you. And hopefully today's message will help everyone. So let me just start here. God wants us to sit with people and love them with the truth. I received an email a little while back from a same-sex couple that's been attending our church and they just said, hey, we've been attending for a while. We love the church, and we believe that God approves of our relationship. But then they said this. They said, honestly, like, we just want to know the truth, and we trust you. 
And I so appreciated the humble posture of their question. You see, delivering truth in any form is one of the most loving things that you can do. And truth is usually never found in public opinion. Yet the way in which we convey that truth is so critical. You shouldn't have to ask to be loved. You are worthy of it. The cross of Jesus proves it, regardless of who you're attracted to. However, every single one of us, we do have to decide if we are interested in more and more truth. We all have some of it. We're all learning more of it. And God's word on a continual basis continues to confront every single one of us. It it, it confronts me almost every day with what I might call just inconvenient truths. What I mean by that is I oftentimes want God's word to sort of conform to my decisions rather than allowing my decisions to be conformed to God's word. And I suspect I'm not the only one who wrestles with that. So what does God's word say? Well, God designed sexual intimacy to be taken place between a man and a woman within the promise of a committed marriage and any other activity, straight or otherwise, is outside of just God's best, like God's intention and plan for our lives, Hebrews 13. And while that may not be what many LGBT people want to hear, believe me, it's not what very many straight people want to hear either. You see, most people, Christians included, are willing to give their souls to God, but they want him to stay out of their bedroom and their thought life. And none of us, regardless of our sexual orientation, are off the hook on this one. In fact, Jesus would take it a giant step further, and he would say, if you've ever even had one lustful thought then you are guilty of adultery. Paul would take it another step further, and he would just include all of this with gossip and with disobedience to parents. Some may say, well, Jesus never mentioned homosexuality. Jesus never mentioned a lot of things, but that doesn't mean that he approved of it. An argument from silence is never a very good one. Jesus did talk a lot about sexual purity, and he did say this in Matthew 19. He says, haven't you read... That at the beginning, the Creator made them male and female, and for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Yet the Bible never takes this and places it into its own category. This is just placed right alongside of every other sin struggle that every single person listening to this has. We're all in the same boat. And here's the deal. Jesus knew all of this. Jesus has the truth on every single sin struggle that you and I wrestle with, and yet we find him consistently sitting with people rather than standing on issues. So rather than asking where our church stands on this, I think that we should ask, where does Jesus sit with this? And I think that we can make a couple of observations. I think that Jesus is grieved over the pain and the mistreatment of LGBT people especially by Christians. Something that I am not proud of is during my teenage and young adult years, I was largely very insensitive to this issue and would oftentimes laugh at jokes that I shouldn't have. And and maybe I might have said something or done something that really hurt somebody who was struggling with same-sex attraction. And I deeply regret that. When LGBT people read some of the vitriol on social media or they see signs that are hateful from people who claim to be Christians, we just have to admit in humility that there is much about this historically that the church has just gotten wrong and we need to repent of it and we need to own it. I'm afraid that the church, as well as many Christians, have oftentimes played perhaps an unintended yet active role 
in pushing gay people away from Jesus. You know, most people who in same-sex relationships or same-sex attracted, they don't leave the church because they were told this is wrong. They leave because they were dehumanized and de- ridiculed and excluded. And that's not just my opinion. Actually, research backs that up. Uh, scholars from both Northwestern and Regent Universities who actually disagree with each other on this issue came together to work together. Imagine that. And they surveyed 1,700 LGBT people, 21 from every state. And this is one of the things that they found. 83% of LGBT people said that they were raised in the church. That's a majority. 51% said that they left their faith community after the age of 18. Now get this. Notice the stark contrast. Only 3% left primarily because of the church's belief that same-sex relationships were wrong. The other reasons that they gave were 18% said that they didn't feel safe. That's tragic. 14% said there was a relational disconnect with the leaders. 13% said there was an incongruence with teaching and practice, meaning that it seemed as if they elevated this issue uh, over other issues that we all wrestle with. 12% said an unwillingness to dialogue. 9% said they were kicked out. People will always gravitate to where they are loved, and if they can't find it in the church... They'll go elsewhere. And way too many times the world has outloved the church. And that needs to change because God is the author of love. Jesus would say it this way in Matthew 19. Love your neighbor as yourself. And you've probably heard that and it seems like such a simple phrase. But notice that there's no prerequisite for that. Notice he never says, hey, you need to love your Christian neighbors or your white neighbors, or your black neighbors, or your Hispanic neighbors, or your conservative or liberal neighbors, or your straight neighbors. No, he says, whoever your neighbor may be, man, love them. In John 3, 17, it says, God sent his son into the world not to judge, but to save the world through him. So if the gospel isn't good news for gay people, then it isn't good news for anyone. See, Jesus' love is unconditional And it still holds us accountable. It desires and empowers our obedience, but thankfully it doesn't rely upon it. And so that means that none of us can lecture, look down upon, or throw the Bible at anybody because we're all sinners in need of the exact same grace made available in and through Jesus. And I really like how the late Billy Graham put this. He said, the Holy Spirit's job is to convict God's job is to judge, and my job is to love. Now, the Holy Spirit can use you and me, but man, I've learned that there's a fine line between the Spirit of God working through me and me trying to play the role of the Holy Spirit. Those are very different things. And when you and I get them confused, then we cause an incredible amount of hurt. You see, when I try to convict someone it almost always comes across as condemnation, whether I meant that to or not. And remember, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance, not repentance that leads to God's kindness, Romans 2, 4. Number three, sexual attraction, and I'm not just talking about same sex, I'm talking about opposite sex attraction, is complex. Now, I want you to imagine with me the pain and the fear, and some of you don't have to imagine because this is your story. But imagine the pain and the fear of someone who in their adolescent years, they begin to hear their friends talk about members of the opposite sex, and you keep wondering when you're going to feel that way because you're more interested in members of the same sex. And as you get older, you wonder when this will go away, and 
you even begin to pray, asking God to take this from you or to change you, but it never happens. And you go to church and maybe you hear messages that sound condemning or you hear cruel jokes or you hear side comments and you begin to ask yourself this question as you lay awake at night, how am I going to live my life? And that's the story that many people grappling with same-sex attraction have and we need to have an incredible amount of kindness and empathy and compassion. You see, regardless of whether you're same-sex or opposite-sex attracted, who we are attracted to and why is largely mysterious and complex. We can't fully understand it. And so you, you might get together with your girlfriends to watch The Bachelor, and they all just think that The Bachelor is just so dreamy, but you don't see it. Or maybe you get together with the guys, and the guys are interested in blondes and brunettes, but you're more interested in redheads. Well, why? I doubt that very few of us at that junior high dance looked across the room for the first time and said, I think I'll be attracted to that person over there. No, you just sort of like were. And how do you explain it? The American Psychological Association puts it this way. It says, there is no consensus among scientists about the exact reasons an individual develops a heterosexual, bisexual, gay, or lesbian orientation. Although much research has examined the possible genetic, hormonal, developmental, social, and cultural influences on sexual orientation, no findings have emerged that permit scientists to conclude that sexual orientation is determined by any particular factor or factors. Many think that nature and nurture both play complex roles. Most people experience little or no no sense of choice about their sexual orientation. And so a very common question that I hear then is this. Well, when it comes to, sex, sec, uh, when it comes to same-sex attraction, are people born with it? Do they choose it? Or has it been the result of something that they've experienced? And I think that some have tried to explain it away rather insensitively by saying, well, then you must have had a disapproving father or a distant mother, or you must have experienced some sort of abuse or trauma in your past. And I just think that's insensitive and silly because I know people that have grown up with all those things, but they grew up and they were heterosexual and they got married and had kids. And I know some gay friends that had wonderful upbringings and healthy households, so that can't explain it. Due to the pain and the social stigma often associated with this, especially uh, 10 or 15 or more years ago, I really don't think that the vast majority choose this. I've actually met several who've confessed to me that if they could turn off the switch and be attracted to the opposite sex, that they would. And so my opinion is that many people have been attracted, have been attracted to the same sex for as long as they can remember and maybe will for the rest of their earthly lives. And for many, not all, but many, this is an unwanted reality. However, then the logic often goes something like this. Well, if someone is born gay, then God must have made them that way. And if God made them that way, then isn't it okay? I mean, that's a really, really great question. And I guess I would just respond this way by just saying, just because, I mean, we're all born with natural biological desires. And we talked about this last week, that we're born into a, a broken world. And so just because I have a biological desire, let's just take me, for example, even a fixed one, it doesn't automatically mean that I should always act upon that. John Corvino, who actually is affirming of same-sex relationships, makes this exact point when he says this. He says, the fact is there, there are plenty of genetically influenced traits that are nevertheless undesirable. 
Alcoholism may have a genetic basis, but it doesn't follow that alcoholics ought to drink excessively. Some people may have a genetic predisposition to violence, but they have no more right to attack their neighbors than anyone else. Persons with such tendencies cannot say God made me this way as an excuse for acting on their dispositions. And I want to be careful here because I don't want you to hear him equate same-sex attraction with alcoholism or violence. I want you to see the logic behind the examples. And he says, just because maybe we have a physical desire doesn't always mean that we should act upon it. I know that if I followed after every one of my fixed biological desires with showing no constraint whatsoever, that it would deeply hurt the people that I love the most. In the book of James, it actually separates the two. It says there is a desire that gives birth to sin. So the desire isn't necessarily sin. Having feelings towards something doesn't necessarily mean it's a sin. Sexual orientation isn't a sin. Uh, Feelings and attraction isn't a sin. It's the decision to engage that crosses that line. And as we said in the last series, the word for sin is just an archery term. It means to miss the mark of God's best for your life. And regardless of orientation, while you may not be able to control who you're attracted to, you can control the decisions that you make about your relationships and how you express your sexuality. And this is required for all of us. I would even go as far as to say there is more heterosexual sin that God needs to confront in our church than anything else. That's actually the bigger issue if we're being honest. And we must all choose to surrender our desires to Jesus and let him be in charge of what we do with our bodies. We're all just as sexually broken in the same way. My sexual sin separates me from God just as much as anyone else's. Therefore, we cannot leave this out of the things that we submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. In fact, the sexual sin that should bother you the most are the ones that you are struggling with right now. And we're all in need of his grace. And can I just say this while I'm on it? Can I just officially make the motion that we ban this phrase in our church? Love the sinner, hate the sin. To many of you, that maybe sounds like good logic. Some of you are like, I've got a coffee cup that has that on it. Uh, (laughs) And maybe you've used that phrase before. I I know I've used that phrase before, but as I've really thought through that, um, that's just really bad theology. It's condescending. It implies that I don't wrestle with any sin, or at least the ones that you do. And Jesus never taught that. Je- Jesus never taught love the sinner, hate the sin. Here's, and only God can do that perfectly. Here's what Jesus taught. Love the sinner, hate your own sin. You see, labels are easy. Relationships are hard work. And our theology should increase our empathy. You can be orthodox in your theology and yet become a heretic by the way that you treat people. And Jesus was always drawn towards people who were very different than him. And one of the marks that you and I are following Jesus is that we will too. This is probably an appropriate time in the message to say, well, Aaron, what what if we disagree with you? Are we still welcome here? And I would say, of course you are. And many do. Our church should be a safe place for everyone to be loved right where they are, regardless of their story, allowing God to be at work in your life, just as God is at work in all of our lives. And we all have issues, and we all have things that we struggle with, and we are dependent upon God's grace as the air that we breathe. When I was in the baptistry a few weeks ago, I I baptized 52 people here, and I was in the tank till nearly 1 o'clock in the afternoon because I just decided to slow it down 
and just to ask people their story. And I looked every single person in the eye, and I asked, this, I asked two questions 52 times. I said, do you believe that Jesus has accomplished everything sufficient for your salvation? And all 52 said, yes. It's nothing that we can do. It's all what Jesus has done. And then I followed it up with this question. Therefore, will you go where Jesus tells you to go, and will you do what Jesus asks you to do? And I got a lot of hesitations on that one. In fact, one lady, she was like, well, that's really hard. And I was like, I know. <laughs> and I just said, here's what I mean by those two questions, that you're calling Jesus your Savior, but he's also your Lord. And that means if you can trust Jesus to be your Savior, then you can also trust him to be the Lord of your life. And that Jesus wants what's best for you, even if it doesn't make sense, or even if it doesn't line up with what you necessarily want in the moment. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, it describes Jesus this way. We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been, let these words land on you, tempted in every way. In every way that we are. Yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we can receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Therefore, you and I, we are chasing after the lordship of Jesus Christ. Placing your trust in him is not, you know, just life insurance for your eternal life. It's trusting that what he says about the way that you live your life now is really what's best for you. And regardless of sexual orientation or the way that we identify ourselves, here's what we're all after. Surrendered sexuality. We're all in this together, fighting the same battle to honor Jesus with our entire lives. And some of you may be grappling with the reality of same-sex attraction for the rest of your life. And if so, then we are in this fight together because we are brothers and sisters, shoulder to shoulder. We're fighting the... Uh, behaviors of opposite sex attraction for the rest of our lives because we all submit those desires to Jesus. The last thing that I'll say here, and I realize that I've not answered every question, and I realize I've probably stirred up a whole bunch of other questions, and that's fine. We can continue to have the conversation, trusting that um, those conversations will lead us to become more and more like Jesus. But here's the last thing I'll say. It's never a good idea to base your identity. I'm saying this to everyone. Never a good idea to base your identity upon anyone other than Jesus. And every single one of us are often tempted to find our identity in three, one of three things. In what we do, what we own, or what we desire. And whenever I hear anyone talk about their sexual desires as part of their identity, I get concerned for the same reasons that I would if somebody talked about their career as part of their identity or their money as part of their identity. Now, with that said, there's much I can understand about it. For many LGBT people, the appeal has been that they found a place where they're loved and accepted and valued. And for many, it's not even about the physical act of, of sex. I've spoken with some who've said, when, when you tell me this is a sin, like it feels like a threat because you're telling me to, to turn my back on my community, and that's not what I'm saying, and I don't think that that's what God would want for you. I would just lovingly urge all of us to Think about reframing our identity around something more durable and eternal. You see, anytime I place my identity in something that isn't strong enough to support it, I'm setting myself up for deep disappointment and hurt. Believe me, I've done it. Aaron Brockett wears several different labels. 
I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm a son, I'm a brother, I'm a friend, I'm a boss, I'm a pastor, I'm a snow skier, and I'm a mediocre CrossFitter. Although this last week I got my first muscle up, so that's awesome, all right? So some of you like don't know what that is. It's totally fine, all right? Hey, these are all um, lenses by which I look through to describe the way that I experience the world. But the minute that I begin to base my identity or worth as a human being on any one of them, I'm setting myself up for deep disappointment and pain. So instead, what I need to do is take each of those labels and I need to make them subordinate to my primary identity. I am in Christ. John chapter 3, verse 30, John the Baptist, I love this. He says, Jesus must increase and I must decrease until it is Christ alone. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone, and the new life has begun. Now, I don't know about you, but I've been following after Jesus for nearly 30 years, and I keep having a tendency to drag the corpse of the old Aaron Brockett out of the watery grave. And I just drag him along, kind of like that lame movie Weekend at Bernie's. You know, it's just like, I just always got him there. I just always want to resurrect him. And, and Jesus says, would you leave him in the grave? You, you, you died to yourself. You're a new person. And he says, and all this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And now God has given us the task, not of judging or condemning people, but reconciling people to him. And as followers of Jesus, that's the only response to grace that's been given to us. I love how Andy Stanley puts this. He says, when we attempt to balance grace and truth, we get the worst of both, never the best of either. Jesus was not the balance of grace and truth. Jesus represented a full dose of both. He was full on grace and full on truth. He never dumbed down the truth and he never turned down grace. He called sin, sin, and sinners, sinners. And then he laid down his life to pay for their sin. And may we never forget that. See, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 9 through 11, actually lists a few descriptions of people who won't inherit the kingdom of God. And I just want you to know that I'm all over this list multiple times. And I wonder if you are too. It says, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, which under Jesus' definition is all of us, nor idolaters, which would be all of us because our hearts are idol factories, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers. So apparently they had women's Bible studies back then. I just needed something else to get emails from, all right? So, hey, I'm just kidding. Thankful for grace. Um, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you, say it with me, were. That's what we were. You see yourself on that list anywhere? You should, because I'm on that list multiple times. And I don't deserve to be included in the kingdom of God, and I don't deserve God's grace, and I don't deserve to sit on this stage I don't deserve to be your pastor. But then he says in verse 11, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. Not by your behavior, not by because you made it right, and, but in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. 
And in verse 19, he says, don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You don't belong to yourself. I don't belong to myself. For God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. Could I just ask you today, and this is for every single person listening to this, would you be willing to give your life, your soul, and your identity to Jesus, trusting that he has what's best for you in mind? And I just wonder if anyone here, you, 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 you said the prayer and you said the words in the baptistry because you wanted to go to heaven and you do believe in God, but you've not yet done the lordship thing. You're still holding on to some things. You're like, God, you can have my heart, but stay out of my bedroom. God, you can have my heart, but stay out of my checkbook. God, you can have my heart, but stay out of my thought life. And Jesus just keeps simply knocking at the door. Would you just let me into all of it? Because I have what's best for you in mind. And I want you to know that we're with you. Shoulder to shoulder as we seek to become more like Jesus together. And when you fail and you will, his undeserved grace is right there to pick you right back up again. Father, we come to you now and this is a hard message to preach. And yet I pray that your spirit would be welcome in this place. That you would do a work on hearts and minds. That we could trust you more and more. And I pray that as a church we would extend this attitude to others that would say, hey, listen, this is a safe place to ask questions. This is a safe place to come and to be welcomed just as you are because we're all seeking the same grace that only Jesus can offer. God, I pray that you would do a transformational work in the hearts and minds of every single person here today because we need it. And so many of us, have more questions and I pray that your spirit would meet us right in the midst of those as we seek to know you more Satan has had a field day with this for far too long and so Jesus we invite you in help us to sit with you in this rather than standing in such a way that creates division we ask this in Jesus name and the church says Amen